We're just waiting for the tiger to get the machine ready. Is it on yet? It's recording now? Oh, so we can't go back and start all over again. Okay, good morning. Welcome to our continuing study. I think this is lesson number five, if I have my numbers right. And let's be opening our Bibles this morning to 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10, as we continue with John's polemic. You remember what a polemic is? It's an attack. John is attacking heresies, false teaching, false teachers, which through their teaching and who they are and how they operate and function in the church would undermine the fellowship that we have with God in Christ. So John is pretty direct. He's animated. He's strong. He's the kind of pastor that we all want pastors to be. He's not going to pull any punches. He's going to tell you exactly what's going on. He's going to tell you if you're a false teacher, you're an antichrist. If you're not telling the truth, he's going to call you a liar. You know, he's pretty direct. We like that kind of a thing. There's no beating around the bush with the Apostle John. He simply beats the bush down and deals with the issue. So thank you for being here this morning. This morning's passage, you know, remember, picks up <clears throat> from the Last verse of actually the second chapter, you remember in the second chapter he begins to deal with righteousness and unrighteousness, the kind of living that is uh, exemplification, exemplifying of God, who he is, God being righteous. Our righteous living is to exemplify the righteousness of Christ. If we're living unrighteously, we can't say that we are children of God. So he begins that theme in chapter 2, verse 29, you remember he says, everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him, of God. And then all of a sudden he stops. And you remember in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 3, he says, Behold, what love the Father has bestowed or lavished upon us, that we, that we should be called the sons of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear who, what we shall be, what we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. And so he exclaims that, and then in verse 4, we pick up the thought from verse 29. So let's open our hearts with prayer, and then we'll get into the subject this morning. Father, <clears throat> Father, as always, Father, what the church needs is not to hear from a man who knows something or thinks he knows something or read something, studied something. Father, what the church needs is to hear from a man who has been gifted, called, anointed, imbued with the power and the effect of the Holy Spirit. And Father, certainly you call us to study, to pray. But Father, mostly we look to you to be the, the real teacher in any class, the real preacher in any sermon. And so, Father, by your Spirit this morning, Father, would you communicate to our hearts this morning this most basic and critical, central issue of our life in Christ? Father, this issue that can either make or break the declaration of your glory. Father, this issue that is such so central to who we are as fallen beings and was so central to you 
in sending the Lord Jesus to the cross. So, Father, minister to us this morning. Father, we pray that as we leave here today, Father, we will leave with a much deeper soberness and even fear of sin. Father, that we will leave with a greater spiritual determination to identify and deal and push away from and deny sin's activity in us. Father, you're not looking for a church that is compromising, a church that is just kind of getting by, a church that sins kind of on a low level. You're looking for a pure church, a church filled with believers who will not sin purposefully, whose heart is against sin of any type for any reason. So teach us this morning. Father, we pray that you will give to us your attitude and your power. Attitude about sin and power to resist it in any and every time. It rears its ugly head in our lives, in our thoughts, in our desires, in our actions. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, first, let's read the passage. I've been forgetting to read the passage as we start these, and I should not do that. So if I forget to read the passage, someone raise a hand next time or whenever and just say, did you forget to read the passage? I would appreciate that. So don't feel bashful if next week I come in and I forget. You just raise your hand and be obedient to the Holy Spirit because we need to read the passage. So 1 Peter, I'm sorry, First, where are we? 1 John? Okay, we really moved through quickly, didn't we? 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 to 10. Everyone who makes a practice, you see where we're coming from at the end of chapter 2, has been born of God practicing righteousness. Okay, verse 4 picks up the thought from verse 29 of chapter 2. <clears throat> Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he, meaning Christ, appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John's pretty straightforward, so let's look at what he's talking about. In verse 4, John begins to define sin from God's perspective. He starts off right away because he's going to be dealing with this issue of sin. And notice how John begins. He doesn't start talking about, you know, sin is a problem. We should not sin. If we sin, this is going on. If we uh, practice sin, here's the deal. We shouldn't practice sin. He doesn't start like that. Why doesn't he? Because if we were to take the pulse or make a definition or understand the attitude or the concept that 
many either both in the church and uh, in the world have of sin we would come up with a concept of a definition of a meaning that might be very unbiblical so john starts off knowing i'm going to be dealing with sin in this part of the uh the letter this is a central issue in our life obedience to god is the central issue that proves maintains and develops and keeps our fellowship with god our obedience so john is adamant to deal with this correctly and clearly because there are teachings out there in his day as in our day concerning the issue of sin and concerning what you can do and what you can't do if you have liberty to do this and liberty to do that and all sorts of heresies out there if you would so how does it begin he says i'm going to tell you what sin is so in verse 4 he begins by defining sin not from the world's perspective but as God sees sin. And this is the most critical thing this morning that if you don't get anything else, let me ask you to bear down and even pursue and ask and pray that God will give you increasingly His view and consideration of what sin is. Now, we probably don't pray that way. Father, Show me what sin is from your perspective. May I have the experience and the feeling that you have concerning sin. May I experience in myself something of what you experience when I sin. If you're not doing that, <clears throat> let me encourage you to do that. Because the greatest way we overcome sin is not by trying not to do it, not by promising not to do it, not by turning over any leaves or even turning over trees. The way we overcome sin is to have a greater love for God and a greater love for what He experiences as a result of Him experiencing our sin. We don't want Him to experience the grief, grieving the Holy Spirit over our sin because we love Him. And so we need to have that understanding in some degree how does my heavenly father feel when i sin what does it do to god because as we experience that if we are believers we are going to begin to say i will not do that which grieves my father i will not do that it begins to build in us a motivation and an empowerment through the love of god and our love for god as we experience his love in us to resist resist this so John begins with God's perspective because he knows that such knowledge is essential for the church's ability to live righteously so sin is not just a failure to do right it's not just a failure it's not just a mistake sin is lawlessness sin is lawlessness you see sin is a repudiation a personal refusal and rejection of God's loving rule over us it's a repudiation a personal rejection it's my and your personal rejection face-to-face -face looking at God saying I will not obey you 
It's our personal affronting and claiming that we are going to do what we want to do in spite of who you are and what you think. Now, I don't think any of us would verbalize that, would we? How many of us would verbalize and stand before God outside and say, I don't care who you are, I don't care what you've done, I don't care what you say, I don't care what you're going to do, I am not going to obey. How many of you would have the nerve to do that? And yet every time we commit a purposeful known sin, we're talking about known sin right now, we're not talking about those things that we're not even aware of. Every time we do that, that's what we're doing. So would you, the next time sin knocks on your door, remember this, in order to obey this, I first probably need to go outside and yell and scream in God's face to get out of my face because I'm going to do this thing. And leave me alone, God, because I'm going to have my way. Now, if you're not ready and willing to do that, then don't sin. Amen? You see, oh, I didn't think sin, I don't consider sin. That, it doesn't matter how we consider sin. It only matters how God considers our sin. You see, everyone who makes a practice of sin, John says, is also practicing lawlessness. Why? Sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is not the result of sin. Lawlessness, lawlessness is the essence of sin. No matter how big the sin is or how little the sin is. You know, these gradations that we give to sin. One of the greatest dangers of the church is the temptation to adopt a weak or a cultural view of sin rather than the biblical view. The church has been so mesmerized and so inundated with the culture of the world that we are beginning to weaken in various areas of sin and categories of sin. And we're not even aware of it. Someone said not too long ago, if we were compared to the Puritans, we would be considered by them as not believers at all the way so many in the church live today. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But generally in the church, the culture of the church has been very damagingly weakened in this realm of sin. That's one of the primary reasons why I think we don't see the power of the Holy Spirit anymore. We're just lax, we're lazy concerning this issue of sin. It doesn't strike us and matter to us anymore or nearly enough when we sin. We're not fearing when we sin. All right, okay, I'll do that. You know, it's just a casual thing with us when we sin. Now, you may be wondering, why does that old frog get animated? <clears throat> Let me say it this way. I am tired, not of people coming to see me, but I am tired of Satan's ability in believers to create devastation and destruction because of sin i'm not tired if it happens to you you come we want you to come please come and if you don't we come get you as you know we will come get you we will hunt you down because we care about you so don't misunderstand and misapply this what is angering here is how much sin is proliferating and permeating the church. 
in open areas. It's a devastation to the name of Christ. I'm not even finished the first page. I have 15 pages of this. <clears throat> you see, sin is not a matter of our opinion. May I say that again? Sin is not a matter of what you and I think or decide. How many of you ever had this thought? I can tell you I have had it many times concerning something that you should not or should whatever do. And you say, I wonder if it would be okay if I... How many of you ever thought that? May I say generally so, not specifically in every case, but may I give you a general comment. If you are wrestling with something and you think, I wonder if it's okay, I wonder if I could do, I wonder if it, for the sake of caution, don't do it. The, seriously, the moment the devil whispers in your ear, I wonder. Now, there may be a genuine question concerning an issue that is sin or not. You know how to find that out? Go to some other believers. Look in the Bible. But if you have something in your mind about what to do, what to say, where to go, how to think, what to desire, whatever, and you're saying, I wonder, don't do it. The better part of valor is what? Don't do it. Just don't do it. Someone in here said, well, there goes all that in my mind. Man, I thought I was. Don't do it. You see, it's not a matter of our opinion. It's not determined by cultural norms or attitudes. The world is changing. And unfortunately, the church's concept and understanding and dealing with issues of sin is also going down the toilet with the uh, world. You don't believe this? Do you see it in your own life? Do you see it in the church? It does not change. You see, our understanding of sin never changes. But from generation to generation or from culture to culture, sin and its effect remains the same as it has since Genesis. I have a few things in here. I don't know if it's in your notes, if I haven't put it in your notes. But I want you to think of this, and I'll put some things together. And you think of some things in your own personal life. How sin has changed by definition. How has our definition of sin changed? Gambling is now gaming. Abortion becomes choice. Homosexuality becomes an alternate lifestyle. Personal preferences and consumption become our rights. Attending church becomes a matter of convenience. Our freedom in Christ becomes a license to do what I believe is okay. Our decision to forgive becomes a matter of how I feel or what was done. Our loving and serving the brethren becomes a matter of availability. Our call to obedience becomes legalism. I bet you could, I bet if we sat here, we could come up with a hundred more definitions. This is what's happening in the church today. You see, even though we are the children of God, we still live in bodies of sin. How many of you recognize that you're a child of God, but you still live in a body that wants to sin? Anybody in here, your body wants to sin? Anybody in here, anybody in here your body doesn't want to sin? If you don't, we will bury you now. <laughs> you're a walking dead person. <laughs> you're dead. You see, the problem is, I'm new on the inside, but I carry around this vile body, as Paul calls it, this, this body of sin, he calls it in Romans 6, 6. 
I live in a body that is polluted and saturated and permeated with the principle and desires and affection for sin through the flesh. <clears throat> you see, this is why we must be ever vigilant, ever discerning by the Spirit, ever pursuant and embracing of God's Word, seeking to be sensitive to the least sin ready to crucify our affections for sin, receiving and cooperating with God's power by the Spirit to equip us to resist every temptation to obey God. Sometimes, and I need to move along, but I ask people this. If sin is a cancer, and it is a spiritual cancer in God's universe, how many of us, really, let's be honest, how many of us, if, if, if you just commit a little sin, are not that upset about it? Come on, let, let's be truthful. You committed a little sin, you know, happens or whatever. That's only four of us. What about the rest of us now about lying? How are you feeling about the lying right now and the deception right now in you? You see? Are you feeling okay about that? I didn't raise my hand, but, you know, I don't raise my hand in class. <laughs> Good morning, Ray. How are you doing back there, brother? So here's what I ask folks. How many of us know this? And I think biologically... This is correct, and I know that there are issues of cancer in this room. How many of you would be willing to take one cancer cell into your body? The doctor said, I'm just going to give you one. Now, one by itself will not kill us. Is that correct? I mean, uh, do you know that's correct? How many of us would take a chance? The least sin, the least sin is taking into your spiritual body your spiritual relationship with God, a cancer cell, the least. And we need to see it that way. We need to see it that way. <clears throat> well, what's God's provision for sin? He's laid it out. Sin is lawlessness. Now, before John deals with the issue of our practice of sinning, our practice of sin, he reminds us of what we should already know. He doesn't just launch into it. He's already told us the definition of what sin is. So we now on the same ground. All of us understand what sin is. We're on the same ground. He says, I'm about ready to go. But in verse 5, he says, I want to tell you one more thing before I get into the issue of the way we live our lives. And so verse 5, he says, you know, this is something that all of us have understanding of to some degree. Well, you know that Christ appeared to take away sin, and in him there is no sin. He says, you know this. You see, before he begins his attack against sin and his explanation of how to identify a believer and an unbeliever, one who is a child of God as opposed to the child of devil and the practice of sin in your life and what it's all about, he says, first of all, let's make clear, let's make clear. We're children of God? Yes, Jesus Christ appeared to take away sin there is no sin in him he says let's remember that because that's the ground that we need to walk on when dealing with the issue of my obedience before God I am in him in whom there is no sin and he has appeared and has come on earth to deal with the issue of sin and forgive me of those sin and sins and break its power over me so that I will be and you will be people who fellowship with God and no longer are practicing sin in the same way. And the sin practice in our life is like a plane going down in flames. 
it is going straight down rather than a gradual declination, declining a little bit at a time. The practice of sin in our life should be going down like a B-29 shot out of the sky. That's how it should be happening in our lives. He appeared. Who appeared? Christ, the Son of God. He appeared. Remember, he was born of the Virgin Mary. His name was Jesus in Matthew 1, 21. Why? Because it would get, uh, well, I'm already ahead of myself. Why did he appear? Who appeared first? Christ. Why did he appear? Jesus was born to die for our sin. He didn't come to give us a better life. He didn't come to, to do nice things. He didn't come for any of those reasons primarily. All those are secondary issues. He came to declare God's glory through a sinful people by dealing with their sin, by coming as a redeemer to pay for their sin on the cross. If you want to know what God's view of sin is, go back and read the account where Jesus is whipped and beaten and scorned and nailed to a cross. And then before you do that or as you do that, then go back a little before that and go into the account of Gethsemane. And read the account of Gethsemane, especially in Luke. Read the account of Gethsemane. I'm going to have to do a sermon about this one day. And I want you to feel the terror and the agony and the horror that this man Jesus is facing to take upon our sin. Two terrifying and horrible issues here for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. First, taking on the pollution and pig poop filth of the sin of his people as if it were his own personally. And then the horror of the consequence of the wrath of God upon him as a result of that as he is punished for our guilt. Two horrors. We typically understand the wrath of God is the worst. It's both. You're going to ask me to go into this pile of you know what all the way and have it all over me. And then I'm going to have to then pay for this, which is not mine, but which belongs to my people, which I take on joyfully for the purpose of God's glory. Read that. And we begin to get a little understanding of what sin is to God. <clears throat> you see, there's no sin in him. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, a wonderful verse. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, to be a sin bearer, to take on, to be clothed with our sin. Not literally a sinner in himself personally, but as if it were he was sinning judicially or being described or said to be sinning. He doesn't become personally a sinner, but he takes on our sin as if he were personally a sinner. You understand the difference? To know who he who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's look at verse 6. Let's look at God's provision. So John begins to deal with the issue of sin. He says, no one who abides in him, in Christ, keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. You see, John has now told us Jesus has come to take away our sin. Now he begins to apply what that means in our daily living. We have been forgiven of sin. 
Amen? Have we been forgiven of sin? Have we been forgiven of our sin? Are we the children of God? Have we been clothed with the righteousness of Christ? Are we adopted into the family? Do we have the assurance by the presence and power and work of the Holy Spirit in us that we are children saved and that we're going to heaven to be with God forever? Do we have that? Well, that needs to be worked out in a very practical way on a daily basis so that we who are the children of God may be manifesting that which God desires to manifest. We are manifesting through our obedience, through the radical diminishing diminution of our sin we are manifesting what the love of god in himself looks like the love between the father and the son the fellowship between the father and the son the joy that is within god the peace that is within god of who he is the satisfaction all of that who god is in himself is now being given to us so that we in him through our obedient walk are able to by the spirit be displaying to the world what our god really is like obedience is the very kernel and key through which this work of god must flow do we see that it is the key the kernel through which this whole fellowship the whole love of God, the whole revelation being the image of God occurs. It is the very portal through which God's work of revelation can be shown to the world. Our obedience. This is why sinning of any sort is so dangerously, dastardly destructive. Because it says something of a lie about who God is in himself because we are to be those who image who God is so that when others see us they can say that's who God is that's how the father and the son relate that's who Jesus is what Jesus is like what Jesus would do what Jesus would think where Jesus would go how Jesus would act in company publicly privately at home so we need to be evaluating and adjust, looking at our lives in relation to those issues. Having told us that Jesus appeared to take away sin, let's start applying that. <clears throat> the practical proof that we are children of God is in the way we live. Our practice proves our parentage. Our practice proves our parentage you know what that means don't you the child will look and act like the parent our practice proves or demonstrates or shows our parentage so let's take the verse he first says no one who abides what does abide mean it means where we live Remember in 8.31 of John, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Everybody likes the second part of that verse. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Hallelujah, we're free. But there is a first verse before that. If you abide where? In my words. My word abiding in you. There's that abiding, remaining, dwelling, staying, living then you will know the truth and that truth of abiding of obedience 
of fellowship will make you free of the chains of sin. Free. That's how that verse works. Please don't quote the second part of that verse, verse 32, the second part of that statement, without first doing the first part. Because if you do, it's somewhat of a lie. You see, because there's only one way to know the truth. Because the world takes that and says other things about the truth. It's a lie. We have to say it the way Jesus said it, if we're going to quote it. John 15, you remember Jesus talked about abiding nine times in these verses in John 15. Abide in me, I, I abide in you. Abide in me, abiding in the branch, abiding, abiding, abiding. So first of all, it's abiding. Are we abiding? Secondly, where are we abiding? The location of our abiding is in him. In him. <clears throat> the location of our abiding is of extreme significance. How are we saved? Now that we are saved, rather, Jesus is our home. He's our spiritual home. Amen? We are the household of God. We understand that. But also, Jesus is our spiritual home, if you would. We live in him. Romans 6, 3. He's our home. We've been baptized into Christ. The question is, are we abiding in him? Or do we live elsewhere? John is saying, if you live elsewhere, you can't say you live at home in Jesus. Do we live elsewhere? And, and one of the things I think we need to ask, because I don't think there's anyone here that lives elsewhere, you never at home. But the question for us then is not, well, whew, man, whew, I'm glad that's not me. John's not talking to me. But there is an issue here about us. How many vacations from home are we taking? Every time we sin, what are we doing? We're taking a vacation from home. How many vacations do we take a day? How long are our vacations? And where are we spending those vacations? If Jesus is our life, if he is the joy and the fellowship and the peace and who he is on Sunday morning when we raise our hand and when we shout and we sing and we dance and we clap and we do all of that, which is appropriate. I'm for that. In fact, I would like to see an uprising in this church of exuberance of worship and praise. So you know I'm not making poo on that. But if we're going to do that Sunday morning, but during the week we've been home only a few hours here or there, what is this about on Sunday morning? What is that about? There's certainly a place of acknowledgement of who I am in Christ in spite of my sin. I understand that. But we should never be able to just worship God and abandonment and just, you know, call out and cry unto him and dance and, and, and just praise God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen and all that without recognizing I didn't spend enough time at home. I remember on a few occasions in this church during the worship time, the Lord reminded me, you did such and such, or whatever it was. You know what I had to do? I had to sit down. I had to deal with God about that, asking to cleanse me, to repent of that thing. And then I had to get a sense, Father, do you want me to stand and worship again? I sat down. Now, that doesn't mean every time I sit down there's something wrong because I'm old and sometimes my feet hurt. But it's okay if you think that, but if, if you're convicted, any of us ever been convicted of sin while we're worshiping anybody? Then sit down. 
sit down. Don't continue to worship. Sit down, deal with it. Let God deal with the issue, then get back up and shout louder than you ever did before. And get up and run around. Dance, jump, do whatever you need to. But get the sense that God has cleansed you of this thing. In Romans 6, Paul deals with this issue, and I won't go into the details there. Hopefully you see some of the things in the notes. But he says the same thing in verse 2. How can we, we who die to sin, we died in Christ, remember, how can we continue in it? He says metanoia, may it never be. King James says God forbid. Well, it doesn't say God forbid. Metanoia means how, may it never be. May it never be. That we who died to sin in the death of Christ should in any way, under any circumstance, continue to live in it. Forgiveness of one another. Remember what we said last week? Forgiveness is one of the major schemes of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2.11, it's a scheme of devil. And what do I mean by forgiveness? What do I believe the Bible means? I believe the Bible means forgiveness the same way God forgives us. He just doesn't say you're forgiven, and, but you've got to stay arm's length from me. I'll see you. I'll be polite to you. You know, all right, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about you anymore. No, when God forgives, what does he do? He runs up to us and throws himself all over us, hugging us into his very presence. We who have done the worst to him. This is what forgiveness is. Saying, I forgive you. I will no longer act toward you as if you sin, but I will now act toward you as if and you are my loving child. That's forgiveness. That's just one little issue of our sinning if we don't do it that way. You see, in verses 11 to 14, after Paul kind of gives this explanation of why we shouldn't sin, essentially, why shouldn't we sin? Because Jesus died to forgive sin. We're in Christ, and how can we in Christ be sinning? Then in verses 11 to 14, essentially what Paul says is stop sinning. Stop sinning. Can we stop it? Can you stop sinning? May I share with you what I do? Here's what I don't do. I never say this. I don't want to sin. I never say it. Now, come on, let's be honest. How many of you say, I don't want to sin, I don't want to sin, I don't want to sin? Stop saying it. Stop saying it. You're wasting your time. In fact, if you are emphasizing, I don't want to, you will continue. Because the emphasis is on I. You're never going to stop sinning when you say, I don't want to sin. <clears throat> you want to stop sinning? And here's what you say. I will not sin. Can you change your terminology from I don't want to, I will not. So when I feel tempted by the enemy, I will simply do this. I will focus my attention on this slimy, slippery snake, and I will say to this slime, you cannot make me sin. That's what I do, Pat. You cannot and will not make me sin. I get a thought pattern I shouldn't be doing, I'll tell him, you cannot make me think that. I get an attitude of anger or resentment or frustration or whatever, and if I realize that and if I'm going to deal with it, I'll tell him, you can't make me feel that way. He has no more authority over us. Amen? He can't make you sin. 
We don't have to sin purposefully anymore. Purposefully, you understand what I said? Every time we attempted to sin, every single time we attempted to sin, we had the ability to say no to sin, to temptation. So if you're having struggles, you rise up against the slime and say, I will not sin, you cannot make me sin, I'm a child of God, in Jesus' name, get out of here. Your reference for that is James 4, 7. And how do we deal with sin? We abide in him. By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body. Remember, by the Spirit. Now, what does John mean by keep on sinning? How many of us in here, and my hand will go up first, know that as a believer, I still find sin operating in my body? Anybody in here can raise your hand on that? I'm still sinning. What does he mean by well, you're still sinning. You can't be a child of God. You're still sinning. Oh, you, John, you out. Man, that was a sin. You out. No, he doesn't mean that. You see, he is talking about sinning as our way of life. He's talking about never living at home. You notice how I used that terminology a little bit ago. Have you left home or are you living always somewhere else in another place, but you're not at home? Are we sinning without conviction? Are we feeling at home with our sin? Are we feeling comfortable with it? We know it's a little bad, but you know, it's, it's going to be okay. You know, it's just one of those quirks I have. You see, John has already admitted that we sin in verse chapter, nine, verse, chapter 1, verse 9, and chapter 2, verse 1. He's already admitted we sin. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Little children, I write these words to you that you don't sin. So he's already admitted we sinned. If we confess our sin, we have, remember, God is faithful. So he already knows we sin. John's issue is not that we sometimes commit acts of sin, acts, activities. I sinned, not that I'm continuing to keep on sinning. I sinned. The issue is not that we commit acts of sin, but that we do not live in the house that we say we live, where we say we live. Are we saying we're Christians and our life is a life characterized by sin? Now, what about if you're going through a sinful season? It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Suppose for the last three months you've been really struggling with issues of sin. Well, the question is this. What is happening in your heart in relation to this sinning? May I say it this way? If you don't give a damn, is it okay to say damn in the church? But that's the best way to say it. I mean, that's how people feel. I don't give a damn. Then you can't say for sure whether the spirit of holiness and righteousness lives in you because the spirit of God cares. He cares. It grieves God. And if you're continuing to sin without anything like any conviction, yeah, it's all right, you know, then I think you either have to go to God and say, I'm in a very bad spiritual place, or am I even a believer? But if you're in a season, you're wrestling with it, and you're dealing with it, and you, you're coming out of it, and you fall back, or whatever, there, there are other issues at, at stake here and involved here. We have people in this church who are in the grip of sinful issues, 
that are permeating their lives for a long period of time. The question is not, how long have you been doing this? That is always a question. But the primary question is, are you struggling against it? Do you want to be, what, freed of it? You understand this? You see, all sin is serious. It's hateful. It brings putrefaction into the uh, fellowship with God. Not purification. Of all the things that I've seen in the church and in my own life, there's only one thing that destroys relationships. Think if you're married or you have children or you have a good friend. And that good friend, your child or your spouse, contracted some kind of deadly disease and is going to die in six months. Does that break your relationship and fellowship with that person? Does it? No. There's only one thing that destroys relationship and fellowship. Sin. Sin is the only issue. Sin committed and then sin in reaction. Sin committed and then sin in reaction. May I repeat that for you? The sin of somebody committed. They did something. They said something. They whatever something. And then the reaction of the other person. And the two sins together become a perfect storm. A perfect storm. The sin of the perpetrator is wrong. But the sin of the receptor is equally wrong. Ooh. That hurts. Because you see... I'm angry and frustrated or whatever because of what that person said to me or about me or did to me. And yet God has never been that way about how I've treated him. Because we were always the perpetrators and God was always the object of our sin. And every sin I commit, I'm the perpetrator and God is the object, essentially. And so the sin committed and the sin reacted to don't create a perfect storm here if the car is going over the cliff at 80 miles an hour and the driver has passed out certainly you as a passenger are not going to be a fool enough to say i am not going to put my foot on that brake i'm not going to do it because he should not have been drinking his alcohol and watch this boom now how many of us would do that <laughs> no put your spiritual foot on the brake don't let the sin of another person infect you to a place of you now reacting sinfully. Remember who Christ is, what he's done. There is no sin in him. He has died to take away even my sin, even my sinful reaction, my sinful attitude, my sinful whatever. And say to Satan, you cannot and will not make me sin. Can you do that, church? Do it this week and you'll see. An increase in power and effectiveness and obedience in your life. Don't try it. Do it. Never try anything. Do it in Christ. Throw away the tries. And let's get on with the doing. Amen? Let's get on. Let me finish by this. From 7 to 10, John warns us about deception. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. He's just recapitulating. He's just regrounding it coming back and dealing it again in our lives. 
whoever or I say makes a practice of sinning is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning for the reason the reason the son of god has appeared is to destroy the works of the devil christ has appeared to destroy satan's rules broken satan's primary weapon of death and fear is broken satan's ability to blind us is broken no one born of god makes a practice of continuing to sin with impunity, with I don't care, I don't have any conviction, I don't really matter, I'm going to have my way. That is not a believer. But even in a believer, when we're sinning, we should be crushed by our sin, devastated before God, and run to Him with repenting hearts and confession. For God's seed, who is the seed? It's the seed of the woman, Galatians 3.16, is Christ abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. You see, the Holy Spirit will not allow it. And by this it is evident who are the children of God. You want to know if you're a child of God or not? Look at your life. Look at your life. Are you walking in obedience? Not perfectly, but does obedience characterize the heartbeat, your desire? So let me end like this. By you raising your hand, if this is true, and I want you to raise your hand if this is true. How many of us, knowing that we continue to sin, want most of all to stop sinning and be totally obedient to God? How many of you want that? If you do, raise your hand. See, these are children of God. The world doesn't want this. So let's be a people who are going to start determining, I'm going to be staying home. I'm not taking any more vacations. And when I do and I realize I'm away from home, I'm running back fast. Because home is where the heart is, the heart of God. See you next week.